Thank you. I, uh, I feel a little self-conscious because this is like the third time you've been hearing from me and um, I have a good, good, yeah, no, I'll get it right this time. I've been in good authority from my uh, family. I have a wife and two small children that hearing from me three times in one day is too many times, but I'll <laughs> do my best. Tom, you're going to need legal representation, I think, shortly uh, based on that last speech, but uh, we'll just <laughs> defy the laws of the state of Louisiana, but... Um, We'll, give you, we'll get you some plausible deniability and everybody behave themselves in the courtyard. Um, the subject of the talk tonight is um, economic liberty in the Constitution. And uh, believe it or not, to merely state such a proposition that there is such a thing as economic liberty in the Constitution would get you laughed out of most uh, law schools, at least if you were in the faculty room. And it is a proposition to which the Supreme Court and the vast majority of the federal judiciary emphatically does not subscribe. Economic liberty, if it exists at all, is an unimportant, non-fundamental right, not entitled to any meaningful judicial protection. That's not what I think, that's what the Supreme Court thinks, and has for about the last 80 years. This is one of the most fundamental and momentous errors in the history of the United States, not just in the judiciary, but that anybody has ever made in the United States. I had the good fortune to be at a, a Cato event uh, last month where George Will uh, was the keynote speaker and he did an extremely effective job of illustrating the importance of economic dynamism and economic uh, liberty in the following way. And I'm, I'm sure it wasn't original with him, but like so much, when George Will does it, it's better than anybody else has ever done it. So he did a very good job. And, but the gist of it is this. Um, ask yourself a simple question. Whatever your station in life is, whether you're a law student or um, you know, you're past that point in your life, do you think that you would trade places uh, with any of the, the wealthiest people from the early 1900s, the Vanderbilts, um, the Carnegies, anybody like that? Would you trade places with the richest man in America in 1905 or 18, whatever? Not if you're in, not insane, you wouldn't. Because when that man got a toothache, there was nothing he could do about it, particularly. Maybe take some aspirin if he was really on the cutting edge, right, of medical technology. If he wasn't, maybe rub a willow, a piece of willow bark, which actually has the same compound as aspirin as the Native Americans knew. But you weren't going to go to a doctor and have that tooth removed. You weren't going to get any sort of effective painkiller. And God forbid, you should be pregnant with a child. That's something you didn't want to go through back then. Um, because it was painful and the chances of dying in that procedure were pretty high. Uh, they didn't know anything, for example, about the germ theory of disease. Um, they didn't know, for example, to wash your hands before you, you know, operated on somebody or, or you know, got involved in something that, that where you could, you could contaminate that person. They didn't know anything about that. Um, and the list goes on and on. There was not air conditioning. They didn't have takeout. They didn't have ethnic food. They didn't have so many of the things that make our lives worthwhile. There's no possible way that you would trade places with the wealthiest person in this country a mere 150 years ago. And part of the reason for that is that we have progressed so far since then that even somebody who's at the relatively low end of the income scale in America is materially better off than the wealthiest person in America 150 years ago. And I find that quite moving and quite significant. And it is not inevitable. That's the most important thing that you can remember. It was not inevitable. It happened in part, in large part, because we got the rules right. 
We set up our economy, we set up our society, we set up our legal system in a way that encouraged people to take economic risk, to reap the rewards of the risks that they took, to move resources from relatively less productive to relatively more productive places. That doesn't happen by accident. It happens when you get the incentives right and you get the rules right. And so to ask whether economic liberty is protected in the Constitution is one of the most momentous questions that we can ask. And to realize that for over 80 years, the Supreme Court has gotten that answer wrong is one of the most concerning um, um, realities that we can face in America. We've got to fix that. I mentioned earlier that America is rapidly falling in, in, in most rankings of economic freedom in the world. That is extraordinarily significant. When you see America dropping in rankings of economic freedom, it's not just a matter of, well, then, you know, we won't have all the bells and whistles. Maybe, maybe um, most, ho most households will not have three cars but only two. No, those are vaccines that don't get invented. Those are technologies like smartphones that make our lives so much better that don't get invented, that are never brought to market. They're things that really make a huge difference in the quality of a human life that don't exist because you're not getting it right. And America, for most of our history, has been the world's economic dynamo, has been the most innovative place in, in, in the world. It's been the place where if you had a bright idea, no matter where you were, whether you were in India or Pakistan or Australia or wherever you were, if you had the opportunity, you came to America in order to launch that idea because that's the place where you could really make it work and you could reap the, the, the rewards of that effort. So this is all sort of prefatory to saying that it matters tremendously whether we get this right because it's, it's not just a matter of luxury. It's not just a matter of sort of living high on the hog. It's really a matter of, of having an access to a truly uh, rewarding and truly um, um, fulfilling human life. So, how are we doing? Well, I think right now, frankly, we're, we are a bit coasting on momentum um, because, the, as I mentioned earlier, the courts took a very um, significant wrong turn during the New Deal, and it's unclear to me which way, I, I'm not, I don't know that we're at a fork, but it's unclear to me whether we're ever gonna get back on the track uh, of economic liberty, of respect um, for entrepreneurialism, of respect for risk takers, of respect for the rule of law, um, and protecting people who have created value um, from the inevitable attempt of other people to come and take what they've created. Uh, all right, so there are a couple of challenges when we ask the question of whether there is uh, economic liberty in the Constitution. And one is, what do we mean by economic liberty? Um, is it sort of the, the liberty to uh, you know, rent out um, substandard housing to uh, workers on your in your factory town um, and, and exploit them because they have no other place to go? Um, that's probably what our progressive friends would say, what we're really talking about. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, it's something as simple as just the ability to go out and use whatever God-given talents you might have to, to work and to put food on your family's table. And frankly, economic liberty spans the entire spectrum. And I would even go so far as to say this, it's actually probably something of a misnomer to talk about economic liberty as if it were some obviously distinct form of liberty. I mean, how many of you clearly divide your lives between the economic self and the other self that's not economic? 
I mean, the whole idea of economics is that it's, it's about incentives, it's about why we do what we do, it's about why we seek um, you know, the gratifications that we do, why we make the decisions that we do. There's no obvious bright line between the so-called economic side of your life and the whatever, the personal, the privacy, the, 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 the intellectual side of your life. Um, but try telling that to the Supreme Court, which has made an extremely bright line between so-called economic rights and so-called privacy rights or rights of, uh, uh, you know, of individuals that are somehow not economic. Um, remember that when the Constitution was ratified in 1788 and went into effect in 1789, we didn't have a Bill of Rights. And it was judged to be unnecessary because the Constitution provided so little power. In fact, somebody uh, during that period said, well, what about the freedom of the press? Don't we need a clause or don't we need some acknowledgement of the freedom of the press? And the response was, there's nothing in the text of the Constitution that would authorize the federal government to infringe the right of the freedom of the press. We don't need an explicit protection of it. And we really need to pause for a minute and understand they really believe that. They really thought that you didn't need to specifically articulate a right of free speech or a free press because they had not authorized the federal government to violate it. Uh, and so if you look at the Constitution, if you look at the Bill of Rights, it's a mistake to say, you know, the only the things that are specifically addressed uh, were the ones that they were serious about protecting. They were serious about protecting everything, the entire spectrum of human existence, because the only things that they had authorized the federal government to regulate were this very narrow set of enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, things like the, uh, the power to coin money, to create an army and a navy, to grant um, uh, intellectual property uh, or, or uh, rights to intellectual property. Uh, and beyond that, there wasn't very much. Now, when the discussion heated up about whether to have a Bill of Rights, and if so, what to include in it, um, I believe it's either the number one or number two most requested or most suggested rights. The states essentially uh, sent to the Congress lists of things that they thought should be included in the Bill of Rights. And um, of the things that were not ultimately included, the top one or two suggestion that they got from the states was, guess what? No monopolies. That was one of the most requested rights that was not ultimately included in the Bill of Rights, and that's incredibly significant because they didn't mean monopoly back then the way we do now. What they understood the term monopoly to mean was when the government effectively gave a particular person or a particular industry the exclusive right to engage in that conduct, to make money doing that particular thing. Um, and this wasn't theoretical. This is something that the, the, the British Crown had been doing for centuries. Uh, English monarchs had a long history of granting special monopolies on things like selling playing cards, or wool, or funeral shrouds, or wine. Um, in fact, one of the, the seminal events of the, 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 the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party, do you, does anybody remember what that was about? That was about a monopoly that had been given by the British Crown to the East India Trading Company to sell tea in the colonies. That's what they were angry about, the monopoly. And that really was um, what they were afraid of, and that's why the, the, so many states proposed that we have a, bill of, uh, a provision in the Bill of Rights prohibiting monopolies. They weren't talking about AT&T or, or Microsoft or Google. They were talking about when the government grants to a particular individual or a particular business the exclusive right to serve a particular uh, segment of the economy. 
And it was rejected, but I think we gotta be careful about saying that it was rejected because people didn't support that concept. I think it was rejected primarily because no one thought that the government would do that, both because the federal government wasn't empowered to, and also because the people serving in the government had just experienced that kind of thing at the hands of the British government. The idea that there was some risk that a guy like James Madison uh, or, or George Mason uh, would, would, would now finding themselves in Congress say, hey, you know, it'd be a great idea if we went ahead and replicated these, these monopolies that caused us to revolt against the British government, we should do that. Nobody thought that was a serious possibility. But 200 years later, and that's actually a very substantial part of what legislatures spend their time doing now, is figuring out ways to hand out special economic benefits um, to particular industries or particular individuals. Um, but it's important not to gloss over that history because it didn't happen all at once. And I want to focus on a very particular facet of economic liberty because it's the one I know the most about. Most of my time, uh, my 17 years at the Institute for Justice, I spent litigating occupational licensing cases. Dana told you a little bit about that uh, this afternoon. I'll try not to repeat the same stories, although that Las Vegas limo case was a barn burner. Um, I might have to recur, 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 recur to it, recur to it. Um, but I'm, um, I'm extraordinarily moved by, by a very simple um, idea, a very simple aspect of uh, American society, and that is how people choose to um, spend their productive hours and how they put food on their families' tables. When I was a law student, um, I was very drawn to uh, labor and employment law. I thought I would really enjoy working uh, in that area. And then what I discovered is that um, if you're working in a big firm, you're mostly representing employers, trying to figure out ways to help them rationalize the fact that they were putting the business to their employees. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, and, and you're essentially helping the power structure perpetuate itself in the practice of private law. But when I got to the Institute for Justice, I spent four years in private practice and then came to the Institute for Justice, and, and there I found what I thought I was most interested in. The ability to help people who are simply trying to use their productive energy and their ideas to provide for themselves and their families and to create value for all of us. Um, and again, referring to Adam Smith, it's not necessarily because out of some you know, um, charitable motive on their part, it's that people acting in their self-interest actually end up benefiting all of us by putting their creative energies um, to work uh, in the area where they can provide the most value. It's an incredibly moving, I think it's an incredibly moving insight. So when the government interferes with it, it hurts all of us, not just the person who's, who's uh, been uh, prevented from, from earning a livelihood. And it turns out in America, really up until the late 1800s, there was almost no occupational licensing. The government almost never involved itself. Uh, in determining who can earn a living in what field. And it was only until doctors got together and essentially agitated for the licensing um, of, of medical doctors that we first saw occupational licensing. There was a small handful of, uh, of occupations that followed. Lawyers, of course, got on board, and a very small handful of others. But by and large, um, the government stayed out of the business of who could do what for a living. And that was a very good thing, I would say. Um, I go back and forth, frankly, on whether I think occupational licensing is ever a good idea. Uh, when I first started at IJ, I thought it was rather obvious 
uh, that we should at least license doctors because that would be kind of scary if we didn't. Uh, I will say now that I've had a lot more experience with licensing boards and I've actually had some personal exposure to what they actually do, they are not remotely interested in, pr in protecting you from negligent practitioners, let me assure you. <laughs> they devote nearly all of their energy to trying to protect their members from competition by outsiders. That's what they spend all of their energy to do. If they have any leftover, they might occasionally try to um, protect you from negligent practitioners, but it's basically a club. And I've actually come to the conclusion that occupational licensing is at best worthless. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's a lawyer, a doctor, or anything else. Um, and I'm especially convinced of that in the information age. Why? Because I think it gives people a false sense of confidence. Uh, I've had occasion to have to go and find lawyers for friends and family members recently, probably four or five times in the last four or five years. And I will tell you that when I'm looking for a, a, a lawyer, uh, for a friend or a family member who's in need, the fact that that lawyer is licensed in a particular jurisdiction is of a precisely zero relevance to me. The fact that a lawyer is still licensed in the state of Illinois is of exactly zero relevance to me. I, it is meaningless. What means something to me is what that person's reputation is. What means something to me is whether I can get somebody on the phone who has worked with that person and will tell me whether or not they're diligent and capable. Uh, and so I'm, and, and of course I'm a lawyer, so I know to ask those questions. So what I'm concerned about is that, in fact, occupational licensing is probably counterproductive at this point because it gives people a false sense of security. And it, it probably causes some people to fail to ask questions that they should ask. But let's rewind the clock a little bit to when occupational licensing first came on the scene. The Supreme Court was somewhat tolerant of it. They said, well, you know, if you want to license doctors, that's fine, um, as long as you're, you're promulgating standards that really relate to the actual um, performance of people in that field. Uh, and there wasn't all that much of it, so there wasn't all that much opportunity for uh, the courts to get involved. One of the seminal um, employment cases, or one of the seminal occupational licensing cases um, of these early years, involved a very interesting situation in Illinois, where there was one class of people who were not permitted to be lawyers. Does anybody want to guess what that class of people was? About a third of you or a half of you fall in this class, Sam? Women. It was women, that's right. So there was basically, Illinois had a policy of not permitting women to be admitted to the bar. And as I understand it, this was um, either unique or almost unique. Most other states did permit women to be licensed lawyers. And there was a woman named Myra Bradwell who was, her husband was a lawyer. She was a very accomplished and learned person. She actually was the publisher of a leading legal periodical. And she was, I would, I, I, I don't know because I wasn't there, but she seems to have been absolutely as learned and knowledgeable as, as any of the male lawyers of her era. And when she applied for admission to the Illinois bar, she was denied for no other reason than that she was a woman. She challenged that and managed to get her case all the way to the US Supreme Court in 1873. And in defending that law, in defending its uh, uh, decision not to admit women to the bar, Illinois made essentially two arguments. First, it is common knowledge that women should be home having babies and raising them. And second, because of their emotional composition, women in the presence of a judge are incapable of rational thought. They're incapable of making reasoned arguments because they just simply fall to pieces. And it just, they just can't do it. Now, I will say this has not been my experience. I've been, I've been, a 20, I've been litigating cases for 20 years. Um, I suspect that my win rate would be somewhat higher than it is if this was actually true, because I've gone up against women who did not fall to pieces in court. Dana, I didn't notice you falling to pieces in the presence of our judge in Las Vegas, quite the opposite. Um, and the reason I dwell on this rationale relates to some, a point that I made earlier, and that is this. There's two ways of doing constitutional adjudication. 
when the government makes a factual assertion about the world, such as women are incapable of practicing law because of their unique emotional composition, if you care whether that statement is true, you can actually check. For example, you could go look at all the other states that allow women to practice law. You could even go into court and observe their performance and see if it's consistent or inconsistent with the state's assertions that women can't handle it. Or if you don't care, you can just take it at face value and not subject that factual proposition to any testing or any scrutiny. And that really is kind of the, the fork in the road. That was the fork in the road that the US Supreme Court encountered. And it's a little bit of a bad metaphor because it wasn't just one fork. Um, the Supreme Court was confronted with this question in a number of different cases. The next one that I'm aware of, and I love this case because the facts are fun, um, in the late 1800s, the humble non-dairy spread that we now know as margarine was invented by a French chemist. Uh, and it turned out to be a low cost and relatively nutritious substitute for butter. And when uh, it was then called oleomargarine, made its way across the Atlantic from France to America, a particular industry freaked out. What was that industry? The dairy industry. And it turns out they have a surprising amount of political clout. And so over a period of years, what the American dairy industry managed to do was to get a bunch of laws passed, both at the state and the federal level, um, providing various restrictions on the sale of margarine. Uh, one of the restrictions was that you could not uh, use yellow dye. Uh, margarine apparently in its original state is rather shocking. It sort of looks like a corpse and it's not very appealing. But if you mix yellow dye into it, it starts to look like butter and people are more inclined to eat it. So that, there was a law that made that illegal. And that's maybe a little bit understandable. You don't want people to think that they're getting butter when it's actually margarine. But there were actually some states that made it a crime. It made it an actual crime to sell margarine at all. And one of those states was Pennsylvania. And two gentlemen were prosecuted in Pennsylvania for selling margarine in violation of the law. And they tried to do something rather I think smart and interesting, they wanted to submit expert testimony that the factual premise of the law, namely that margarine is deadly poison, is false, factually false. The trial court excluded the proffered testimony. The trial court said this is not relevant. Stop, pause and just think about that for a minute. What if the state of Pennsylvania had said that margarine turns people into werewolves or vampires? Would it have been irrelevant whether that's a true fact or not? Could you have been able to bring expert testimony and say, first of all, there's actually no such thing as a werewolf, and second, if there was, margarine would not be the thing that turns you into a werewolf, right? So the trial court said, nope, you can't introduce this expert testimony challenging the factual premise of the law, namely that margarine is uniquely unhealthy, and they appealed that decision all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it, it resulted in an 1885 case called Powell versus Pennsylvania in which the Supreme Court affirmed the lower court and said, correct, once the legislature enacts a particular policy and articulates a particular rationale, whether it's margarine is deadly poison or turns people into werewolves, it is none of our business as a judiciary, whether that factual premise for the law is true or false. Maybe women can practice law, maybe they can't, maybe margarine is deadly poison, maybe it's not, it's none of our business. That, that was the fork in the road. That's where you essentially are going to go down the path of having a rule of law nation or you're gonna go down the path of having a corrupt autocracy, in essence. Um, now, there were some bumps along the way. There was this Lochner case that I mentioned earlier, I think I mentioned earlier, um, in connection with Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, the Obergefell case. 
Lochner is one of the seminal cases in American constitutional law. Um, it involved a New York law that made it a crime for people to work more than 10 hours per day or 60 hours a week in a bakery, but not all bakeries. High bakeries were exempt. Bakeries and country clubs were exempt. Residential bakeries were exempt. A lot of bakers were exempt. This begins to get suspicious because if it is in fact, as the, as the legislature claimed, uh, very unhealthy to be exposed to bakery conditions for more than 10 hours a day, it really shouldn't matter whether it's a bread bakery or a pie bakery. And when you begin seeing all kinds of inexplicable exceptions in laws like this, you should begin to get suspicious that something is afoot, which it probably was. Um, so what happened was that a, um, a baker, I'm sorry, a bakery owner um, in upstate New York named Joseph Lochner uh, wanted to hire uh, a baker to work more than 60 hours a week in his uh, bakery. And the baker, whose name I now forget, uh, also wanted to work. So basically you had a proposed contract. I would like to hire you for more than 60 hours a week. I would like to work more than 60 hours a week. The only person or the only entity that had a problem with that was the New York State Legislature. And this law makes it a crime. So they found out about this contract somehow and they prosecuted Joseph Lagner for violating the, the New York Bake Shop Act, which is what the law was called. The case gets up to the, the, the US Supreme Court and the question is essentially this. Is it plausible to suppose that the New York legislature is trying to protect the health of bakers by ensuring that they're not exposed to the admittedly unpleasant and uh, dusty uh, conditions of a bakery? Or could they be up to something else? Now, here's the counter narrative. This law was, did not come out of nowhere. This law was actually drafted and lobbied for by a group of German bakers who had managed to automate their bakeries. They had factory bakeries. They did not need bakers to put in 10, 12, 16 hours. And that's the way baking by hand worked back then. You would show up for work, you would do the preparation, you would get the bread, uh, you know, the, the ingredients mixed and the bread needed, and then you would put it in tubs and it would rise. And when it was rising, you would sleep. And then you would wake up, and when the bread was ready to go in the oven, you would get back on the job. And that's why these guys were working so many hours. But in a factory bakery, you don't need people. You don't, it's not that labor intensive. You don't need people to work that many hours. And so the factory bakeries, if they, could put, if they could have a law that uniformly forbade anybody from working more than 10 hours a day, they would have a tremendous competitive advantage because they don't need that kind of intense labor. They've automated. Guess who was doing the intense labor? Who in New York during this time would not have the capital to acquire automated bakeries? Immigrants, exactly right. So what you have is a classic uh, uh, face-off between entrenched political interests, the German bakers and their unionized workers who, were, who had grown accustomed to only working 10-hour shifts because they were factory bakeries, squaring off against recently arrived immigrants who did not have the capital to compete with the automated bakeries but were willing to put in the hours. That's the counter-narrative. And the Supreme Court, believe it or not, actually... They didn't say in so many words, but they said, we do not find plausible that the state of New York is trying to protect the health of these immigrant bakers. And, we, and more or less between the lines, they say, it seems more likely that this is a political ploy, that a politically powerful group has managed to you know, get a hold of levers of power and enact a law that disadvantages the politically disenfranchised immigrants who have just recently arrived in America and have no other way to get into this business than by working long hours. And they struck down the law. So Lochner is now one of the most reviled cases in, in, in American constitutional law. Uh, young law students are taught to revile it. They're taught to say Lochner with a certain contempt. 
And there are many of us who think it's actually one of the best cases the Supreme Court ever decided because there's no particular reason to believe that the New York State Legislature had the best interests uh, of immigrants or frankly anybody at heart. And there's every reason to believe that legislatures are prone to capture, that they are prone to interest groups showing up and saying, I'm here, I'm not gonna tell you this overtly, but there's some people competing with me and I would like your help in shutting them down. And I think this is one of the most important lessons I learned uh, working at the Institute for Justice, because I was both in court, where I usually was, but I also had a certain amount of interaction with legislators. And I think it's important for everybody to understand how it actually works. And maybe some of you have seen this, but here's how it actually works. Um, there are now uh, three states, just three, in the country that require a license to practice interior design. Florida, Louisiana, and Nevada. And in every other state, including New York, California, and Texas, the biggest states in the country, it's, anybody can do it, and there have been no problems whatsoever. You might think that if you went into a legislator's office and said, hey, I think that our state should license interior designers, what do you suppose the reaction would be? Are you crazy? Why on earth would we do that? That is absolutely not the standard reaction. The standard reaction from a legislator is this. Is there anybody who's going to object? That's what legislators care about. I am here to do something for you. You're a constituent, I'm a legislator, and I'm here to do whatever it is that you want me to do. All I care about is, am I gonna get any pushback from some other constituency? That, in my experience, is how almost every discussion of this kind goes. It is not, are you crazy? Why on earth would we regulate that? We're gonna be putting people out of work. Is there some reason? Why, why would we be, why would we join um, three states? Why would we become the fourth state? Are there any problems in the 47 states that don't regulate interior design? Those conversations do not happen, in my experience. What the conversations that happen is, perfectly happy to do that for you. I only need to know, am I gonna get any political pushback from some other constituency? If the answer is no, you got it. You got it. That's how these laws get enacted. Uh, they sometimes say that, um, are you familiar with the infinite monkey theorem? This is the idea that if you put enough monkeys in front of enough typewriters, they would eventually write Shakespeare. Well, they'd also write occupational licensing laws. <laughs> and I submit that that would be a best case scenario because at least those monkeys are not malign. They are merely arbitrary. The, the system as it really exists is malign. The system as it really exists enables people uh, here in Louisiana, for example, um, Louisiana, believe it or not, is the only state in the country that licenses florists. Who knew that? Put up your hand if you knew that. All right, good. Some of you read the book. So, no kidding. Here in Louisiana, it remains the case that if you take two flowers and put them together in an aesthetically appealing way, or even just a way you hope would be aesthetically appealing, you've made a floral arrangement. And it is illegal for you to sell that floral arrangement in Louisiana unless you are a state licensed florist. So my sister's a doctor in Maine, she needs a license. I'm a lawyer, I have to have a license. Dana's a lawyer, she needs a license. Here in Louisiana, you need a government license to sell floral arrangements. Does anybody think for a moment that the way that law got on the books is that some state legislator woke up one morning and said, you know what? Today's the day that I'm gonna go to bat for the people of the Pelican State and make sure that they are no longer exposed to the hazards of unlicensed floristry. It's preposterous. 
There is one reason and one reason only why that law is on the books, and it's because a bunch of local florists got together, and I actually know this because I got to talk to the people who were around. There's a 95-year-old guy just down the street here called Billy Harrelman. The Harrelman family are the first family of floristry in Louisiana. I managed to find him when I litigated this case, and he told me how that law got on the books. The reason that law got on the books is a bunch of, peop a, a bunch of people in Florida figured out a way to load up panel vans with high-quality floral products and bring them to Louisiana and compete with the crummy floral products that they had here in Louisiana. It was before refrigeration. They were bringing very high-quality flowers into the market. They were competing with the local product, which was not very good. Flowers don't tend to last very long in the Louisiana heat. Um, and the law got passed essentially to discourage that activity, and then it got morphed and it got refined to the point where it became the florist law. So we challenged this law in court, and remember that when you challenge um, a, a, an economic regulation, a regulation of your right to earn a living, for example, um, it's the rational basis test that applies, which is a fraud and a charade. Uh, in most constitutional cases, the question is, what end is the government actually pursuing, and is there a sufficient fit between the means that they've chosen to advance that end um, and, the, and the specific concern that motivates. So if it's a free speech case, by the way, every constitutional right has limits, even free speech. There are some things you cannot say, there are some things you cannot publish. If you manage to get a hold uh, of the, uh, the non-official cover list, the CIA actually does have a non-official cover list. Those are the, the, the uh, CIA officers that are working in foreign countries in a non-diplomatic cover, and if they get identified, they are dead. There is a list, and if you get a hold of it and you try to publish it, they will absolutely prevent you from doing that. And if you challenge that in court, the court is gonna say, all right, what's the government interest here? Not having our foreign agents, our foreign uh, intelligence officers murdered. Okay, sounds like a pretty important interest. What's your interest in publishing it? I don't know, just to make some money. Um, that's genuine judicial review, where they actually determine what are the interests on both sides. Rational basis review is not like that at all. It's just a giant fraud and a charade, it's a fiction. And so what happened when we challenged the Louisiana florist uh, law is that the government in defending that law did not have to come into court and candidly acknowledge why that law was really enacted, which was of course for economic protectionism. And instead the rational basis test invites the government to invent justifications, to literally make up things that are not true as long as the lawyer can say them with a straight face. I invite all of you to put on your government lawyer caps and think of some rationalization for licensing florists. And remember, it doesn't have to be true, and you don't have to have any evidence to support it. If you can say it with a straight face, you get to say it in court if you're a government lawyer in a rational basis case. Anybody got anything? What do you got, Tom? Unlicensed florists would distribute carnivorous plants, kill them. You might lose a finger. <laughs> What's that? Paul Meadow bugs. There you go. I'm so glad you guys weren't in this case. Anybody else? Allergies. Allergies. Would you buy it? Would you believe infected dirt? How about a misplaced corsage pin? Or my favorite, the exploding bridal bouquet. All of these things, by the way, were cited by the judge when he upheld the law. Yep. Let me explain the exploding bridal bouquet. It's beautiful. So I was actually deposing a member of the Louisiana Horticulture Commission and asking him, like, why do you think this law could have been enacted? And he said, well, you know, a bridal bouquet is a bunch of flowers held together at the stem with floral wire, and they wrap it really tight around the stems of the flowers, and then they cover that up with green floral tape, and that's what the bride is holding. And he said, you know, if that's not done properly, 
the bride could turn from the altar to walk down the aisle, and at that exact moment, the whole thing could just come unsprung. And then the wire could get wrapped up in her wedding dress, and she could trip and do a face plant on her wedding day, and that would be bad. And I'm looking at this guy like, I don't know whether to hate you or love you, man. That's creative, <laughs> right? Because that's never happened. I assure you, it's never happened in the history of floristry. But here's a question. Is it conceivable? I mean, I think it is. And guess what? That's enough. That is enough for that law to be upheld under the fraudulent rational basis test because it doesn't have to be true. You don't have to have any evidence that it's an actual concern. You just have to be able to say it with a straight face. And I, um, I put this in the book, but um, I used to, so one of the challenges when you, ra when you litigate rational basis cases is to come up with something so outlandish that you can use it as an example of something that would obviously not pass the rational basis test. And what I used to use was radioactive space monkeys. I would say, well, you know, I mean, if that's the explanation for the law, like, clearly that can't be it. And then, actually, I discovered that NASA at one point had a radioactive monkey program, and I had to stop using that example because at that point it actually probably became conceivable. Maybe this law is about, you know, protecting us from radioactive space monkeys because they actually exist. So um, it's good that you're laughing at this because it, it really is, it is contemptible, it is risible. When you stop and remember that, that it's, step out of our current frame of reference and realize that this is the utterly non-serious approach that our courts take to the question of whether you have a right to put food on your family's table with whatever means you have available. And let me quickly tell you the story of our lead client in the Louisiana Flores case, a woman named Sandy Meadows. Sandy was a high school dropout from Mississippi who was living in Baton Rouge. Her husband had died recently, so she was a widow, and they didn't have any savings, so she had to support herself. The only vocational skill she had was floristry, but she was pretty good at it. Um, the problem is that the Louisiana florist test was highly subjective and deliberately designed to test you on archaic skills that nobody uses anymore. So you could either train to pass the test, in which case you'd be a crummy florist, or you could actually be a good florist, in which case you wouldn't be able to pass the test. She took it five times, failed every time. Not coincidentally, um, you gotta hand it to Louisiana because when they do corruption, they don't do it halfway. The florist test actually had both a written part and a, and a practical part. The practical part involved, you had to make four different floral arrangements in four hours, um, and then you would have to bring your work up to a table at which was gonna be seated six judges. They didn't even bring these judges in from like, they weren't theoretically disinterested bureaucrats, they were actually working florists. They would bring in working florists to evaluate your work and determine if you were good enough to go compete with them. So we actually got a hold of the relevant data. What we determined was that in the last 10 years before we challenged the law, the pass rate on the Louisiana florist exam was 37%. For point of reference, the pass rate on the Louisiana bar exam for lawyers was 68%. It was about twice as hard to be a florist in Louisiana as it was to be a lawyer. Um, so anyway, Sandy Meadows failed the exam a number of times, and, um, but bless her heart, she bravely was working in the, in the, in the floristry black market here in Louisiana. <laughs> managing the floral department of an Albertson's grocery store until the floral police, they were the Louisiana Horticulture Commission, I call them the floral police, they showed up one day at the, at the, at the Albertson's and they told the, the, the management of this grocery store, look, Sandy Meadows is not a state licensed florist and you need to have one running your floral shop or we're gonna shut it down. Now the problem was they didn't need two florists in that floral shop so they fired Sandy and hired a state licensed florist. So she had no job. I flew down here uh, one rather sultry September day in uh, 2003 to prepare Sandy for a deposition in the case. And when I got to her apartment, 
uh, I climbed up the stairs, which you had to do because the elevators were always broken, and I came into the common area, and instead of being in her apartment, Sandy was lying on a couch in the common area uh, with a neighbor fanning her with a torn off piece of cardboard. And poor Sandy was lying there with her abdomen exposed, and she had surgical staples from here to here because she just had gallbladder surgery. And I looked down at her and I said, what are you doing out here? And she said, well, they turned off the electricity in my apartment because I couldn't pay my utility bill, uh, and they're doing some work on the, in the, on the water main. I have no running water, and so this is the only place where I can get comfortable at all. And it was not comfortable out there. There was no air conditioning in the common areas, about 95 degrees, 100% humidity. It was awful. So I, um, I put her in the rental car, and I drove her over to a Piggly Wiggly grocery store, and I wrote a check out of my own. Uh, this is back when you had checkbooks. I wrote a check. Uh, to get her power turned back on, and I, I checked her into a La Quinta motor, and I said, you know, just, just get comfortable, and we're gonna cancel the deposition, you're in no condition to do this, um, and, and you know, we'll figure it out. Um, that was actually the last time I saw Sandy Meadows alive. She died three weeks later alone, unemployed and in poverty, because the state of Louisiana said, you have to have a license to be a florist. And I and we, my colleagues at IJ, could not convince a federal judge that was a violation of her right to economic liberty. And I, yeah, I mean, you can tell, you can tell in my voice that I, I still remember that day like it was yesterday. And, and I felt like I failed her. Uh, and now what I've come to realize is that maybe I failed her, but you know who really failed her? The courts failed her. The Supreme Court failed her. When the Supreme Court took a totally non-serious approach to something as important as economic liberty, that's who failed Sandy Meadows, and that's who's failing every single one of us today. Now, what's the good news? The good news, as I mentioned at the end of my last talk, is judges are beginning to push back. Dana mentioned that we won a case involving a bunch of uh, uh, monks in Louisiana who handmade caskets. We won that case in the Fifth, Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The eyebrow threading case that I told you about in Texas, we won that case in the, in the Texas Supreme Court. Guess what that means? That means there's now a state, Texas, where both the federal courts and the state courts consider economic liberty to be a meaningful right, not a meaningless right. And we're gonna have the opportunity to do a natural experiment because our opponents, people who say that the courts should not get involved in protecting economic liberty, will tell you that the earth will literally stop turning on its axis if judges second-guess legislatures when it comes to economic regulations. I'm betting no. But we don't have to take my word for it and we don't have to guess anymore because there's going to be an increasing number of states where we can check it. If we care, we can check and we can see whether the prediction that judicial protection for economic liberty will be a disaster is true or false. And you know the answer to that question. I don't have to tell you what the answer to that question is. The people who need to learn the answer to that question are people who are sitting judges because they're the last line of defense when it comes to your economic liberty. The framers hoped that legislators would take care to protect and to respect your constitutional rights, but they did not count on it. They charged the judiciary with the duty to protect your economic liberty. And so far, the judiciary has been shirking that duty, but they're wrong and we know they're wrong, and guess what? The really good news is some of them are now beginning to realize that they are wrong. And this is a fight we are going to win. Thank you. <clears throat> um, optimistic is not my usual setting, so thank you for that, 100% um, sincere.
I do believe we're going to win this fight. So um, I'd love to take questions if um, anybody wants to. Yeah. I will try to succinctly describe the purpose of the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court is the highest judicial power in the United States, um, and it exercises what the Constitution describes as the judicial power, and its job, uh, and the job of the entire judiciary is to resolve legal controversies between individuals and between individuals and the government. Uh, and those disputes can be anything from private tort or contract actions, like we discussed before, all the way up to the most fundamental constitutional challenge, such as, do I have a right to sell flowers without permission from the state of Louisiana? Um, we have, I think it's safe to say, among the most sort of legalistic uh, systems in the whole world, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are all kinds of ways to resolve disputes, and most of them are worse than adjudication and litigation. Most of them are worse. And so the judiciary exists primarily to resolve disputes peacefully between people. And when it's operating at its best, that's what it does, including people and their government. Is that responsive to your question sufficiently? If you want to follow up, I'd be happy to. Uh... All right, we'll both think about it, yep. There's a microphone coming around, coming right at you. Um, so you mentioned early on that uh, one of the main um, uh, proposals for the Bill of Rights was a protection against monopolies, right? One, one of the main, one of the most requested rights not ultimately right. included, yeah. Right, So um, how do you reconcile that with the fact that one of the few powers that was granted <clears throat> in the Constitution was the Congress's right to issue patents on technology? Yeah, so um, there is a provision in the federal constitution that says to promote the useful arts and sciences, the Congress shall have the ability to effectively, they didn't use the word patent, but effectively issue patents and copyrights. Um, and I think that's very clear what that means. It means that the framers decided that in that particular area, that particular uh, sort of economic sector, um, it was a good idea to encourage inventors to bring their products to market by saying, for a finite period of time, you will have protection. You, the government will protect your ability to be the only person who can sell that invention in the market for a finite period of time. But in exchange, you're going to tell us exactly how you did it. And when your limited protection ends, then anybody else can get access to your secret formula and do what you did. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. You don't have to take out a patent. There's nothing in the Constitution that requires you to patent an invention, and a lot of people don't. The, um, the formula for Coca-Cola is not patented. They just count on the fact that they don't think anybody else will be able to reproduce it. And so a lot of people do that. They don't patent their technology. They just say, you know what? You're not going to be able to figure this out, so we'll take our chances without patent protection. Um, and so I don't think... Um, I don't, yes, the, uh, you know, the, the intellectual property clause um, is, represents a grant to government to exercise some regulatory authority over the economy where it might otherwise have been free, but I don't think that's an exception that sort of undermines the basic concept of economic liberty precisely because it is an exception, and it's a pretty narrow one, and no one forces you into that. If you don't want to copyright a book you wrote or a song that you, you wrote, you don't have to. If you don't want to patent your invention, you don't have to. If you don't want to trademark um, you know, your, your intellectual property, you don't have to do it. It's just saying, hey, you know, if you want to get some limited protection for a while, you're welcome to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, terrible. So just like with copyrights, basically what Congress has done is it's, it's taken the constitutional power to protect uh, patents and, and, and copyright and in other intellectual property for a finite period of time, and it's extended it and extended it and extended it. And it's very obvious to me that it's been doing that because it's being manipulated by corporate interests like Walt Disney. There's, oh, there's no question that Disney was behind the most recent extension of copyright. In other words, copyright has been stretched and stretched so that it, it, it provides protection for longer and longer. And the last time they extended the life of the copyright it was because Disney didn't want to lose copyright protection for Mickey Mouse, which is such a beautiful, beautiful metaphor for the whole area. Today you did a great job on judicial restraint. Yep. And I think I almost got it. But I got confused. Could you spend a few minutes on what judicial activism is? Yeah. And then perhaps give us the proper term for what you think judicial something should be. Thank you so much. I feel like I'm, I'm at the plate with the bases loaded, two outs in the bottom of the ninth, and that curveball did not break. I'm going to be able to hit that one. Um, yeah, so. Judicial activism is a term that is overused, and some people would say it's meaningless, but I disagree, it does have a meaning. Judicial activism is when a judge nakedly substitutes his or her policy preferences for an obviously contrary uh, provision or rule, either in law or the Constitution. I'll give you an example. Let me give you an example of what would be libertarian judicial activism. The original Constitution did not authorize a federal income tax. I think that was quite wise. During the Progressive Era, we got the 16th Amendment, which explicitly authorized a federal income tax. I think that was quite unwise. I used to think it was mainly because uh, giving the federal government the power to tax incomes was something like giving alcohol and car keys to a teenager. I still think that. But now that I've been a taxpayer for many years, and as my life has grown more complicated with property and family and so forth, I now think that that the, the power to tax incomes is unwise in large measure because it authorizes such a massive invasion of privacy. And that was really driven home during the last five or six years, wouldn't you say? You have to turn over everything about your life to those people, to people like Lois Lerner? Good Lord. Now, if I were a federal judge, if in some alternative universe, some whimsical alternative universe where out libertarians could be federal judges, I get nominated and confirmed, and someone brings a case in my court challenging the constitutionality of the federal income tax. On policy grounds, I think it's a terrible idea for the reasons that I have expressed. But it's 100% clear that it's constitutional. So if I were to strike it down, if I were to enjoin the collection of federal income taxes because I think it's a bad policy, that is judicial activism. There is no credible argument to be made that it's unconstitutional. The 16th Amendment is unambiguous. Stupid, but unambiguous. So that's judicial activism. And the reason why it's so overused in my judgment is what it's, what it's come to be used for is I disagree with that Supreme Court decision, but I'm not smart enough to explain why I disagree with it, but I want to put a lot of stink on it, so I'm going to call it activism. That's how it's usually used, by people who don't have any real theory of the Constitution. They couldn't explain to you why that particular decision is completely indefensible, which is, I would say, the, the hallmark for judicial activism. And in fact, they're usually wrong. 
Most Supreme Court decisions, whether they're right or wrong, are in fact defensible. And it actually takes a great deal of effort to explain why they are right or wrong. But they're not usually indefensible. Some of them are, but not all of them. And so activism is a term that basically um, constitutional dilettantes use to try to apply more uh, you know, condemnation, more power to, a, to their critique of a particular Supreme Court decision than they can bring intellectually. So they use rhetoric, and the rhetoric they use is judicial activism. Um, so put aside judicial activism, which actually doesn't happen all that much, but what happens a tremendous amount is what I referred to earlier as reflexive restraint. And what that means is essentially judges not being willing to delve into the question. So for example, is it the case that margarine is deadly poison? There's an answer to that question. Is it the case that women fall to pieces in the presence of a judge to the point where they can't even do an effective job in court? There's an answer to that question. Reflexive restraint describes a judicial mindset where you systematically refuse to ask that question. Why did those police officers tell all those people to stay inside? Was it because they were in hot pursuit of some terrorists who, who present a present threat to the lives of the people of that neighborhood? Or were they trying to prevent them from voting in tomorrow's election? When it matters, judges ask. And when they don't think it matters, which is most of the time, they don't. That is reflexive judicial restraint, and it is the defining ethic. It is the absolutely defining mindset of most judges who are serving today, and it's wrong. The right way to approach it is what I articulated in my book, is judicial engagement, which is a term that was coined by um, my and Dana's former boss, Chip Meller, who founded the Institute for Justice. And it essentially describes a judicial mindset in which you take every constitutional case seriously, and that means asking what's actually going on. Why is the government making it illegal to operate a private school? Why won't the government allow women to practice law? Why, and by the way, some, I, I was sitting at a table earlier, not all of you know this, I should have mentioned this in my earlier talk, um, there is actually a federal law that makes it a crime to write a futures contract for one and only one commodity. Of all of the things known to have value in the universe, you may write a futures contract for all of them except one, and that one item that you may not write a futures contract for is the humble and usually round onion. You can do a futures contract for corn, for mushrooms, for apples, for oranges, for, 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 for uh, pork bellies, but not an onion. I love the expression on your face. There's a backstory. In the 1950s, a bunch of Michigan onion farmers got involved in some kind of a futures scam, and they, and they lost their shirts. They got ripped off. They were, very, they were very put out about this, so they went to their congressman, who happened to be Gerald Ford at the time, and they said, we got ripped off in an onion scam. And he said, let me fix that for you. He, went, he got a law passed saying, no more onion futures contracts. And that's why you can't, and it, it's totally irrational. It has no basis in, in fact whatsoever. But guess what? It's been upheld by the federal judiciary. That's judicial abdication. That's reflexive restraint. Judicial engagement is when you say something like, is there something special about onions? And then, I like to do this, hypothesize an honest government. The response would be, not really. There's some guys that had access to a congressman, just, you know, no, not really. And then you know what you do as a judge? Ah, okay, that law's unconstitutional because it doesn't have any rational explanation, doesn't have any truly legitimate explanation. In the economic sphere, our, our judiciary has given up on that for two reasons, I think. First, it's hard work. And second, if you as a judge or a judicial branch started honestly evaluating the quality of Congress's output in every case, there'd be a lot of conflict. 
Congress does not want you grading their homework honestly in every case because it really wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. And I think that's mostly what's going on, is that the judiciary realizes how much conflict there would be if they subjected everything that Congress passes to actual scrutiny because so much of it is rotten and would not stand up. But we're winning. We're winning that fight, slowly. We're, we're dragging judges back to engagement from reflexive restraint. One judge at a time. Thank you. I'm done? I've, I got three minutes. Somebody give me a softball. You don't want to hear that, trust me. Do you mind rating the existing Supreme Court judges and who may be moving out? Just one or two sentences. I mean, look, you know, so in fairness to them, it really depends on the issue. And, and they all have areas in which they're pretty good, and they all have areas in which they're terrible. Um, I would say that, that in terms of just intellectual rigor and consistency, Justice Thomas consistently is at the top of my list. Um, and by the way, he's written one of the most uh, sort of full-throated defenses of the rational basis test of any sitting justice. I think he's absolutely wrong about that, and I think it's one of the most disastrous doctrines in all of constitutional law. So I don't know if his thinking has changed since then. Um, so he's not pure, but he's really, really thoughtful, and he's really, really sincere, and all of us make mistakes. Um, from there, I don't know, maybe, um, I mean, Gorsuch, I think, has real promise, you know? Kennedy is really hard. I mean, Kennedy sometimes gets it right, and sometimes, as Dana was talking about earlier, he was the swing vote that caused us to lose the Kelo case in one of the most namby-pamby, incomprehensible opinions that any of us have ever read. And yet, on the other hand, he sometimes, he was the swing vote in the Heller case. He's the reason why the Second Amendment actually is understood to protect an individual right. He's, he's inscrutable. Um, the chief, I think, is pretty much very, he's very focused on the institutional integrity of the court, which I think sometimes causes him to, to decide cases on the basis of something other than the Constitution, which I think is a real problem. On the other side, um, Justice Breyer is a disaster. He's a total statist. Um, I don't know what to say about Justice Ginsburg, so I won't. Um, Justice Kagan is absolutely brilliant. She's absolutely, she is their Justice Scalia. Um, she asks brilliant questions, she writes brilliant opinions, and I think she's going to be one of the most influential Supreme Court justices as long as she's on the court, which grieves me a little bit because I don't think she's very much in agreement with us, but I can't take it away from her. She is brilliant. Um, and Alito, I think he's very sincere, I think he's very smart, and, um, it, you know, but he was a lifelong career prosecutor, and he's never seen anything the government's ever done in the criminal sphere that he had any problem with, as best I can tell, and I think that's hugely problematic. And if I've left any out, we can talk about it over drinks. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs>